Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr Kate Steele. And today's episode is Hurt, where we'll discuss the complex regional pain syndrome. In this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. In late 2022, the journal Pain Medicine published an article titled Complex Regional Pain Syndrome, Practical Diagnostic and Treatment Guidelines, 5th Edition. After reading it and brushing up our own knowledge, we thought this would be a great refresher topic for those of us both preparing for the Part 2 exam and those looking at the exam in the rearview mirror. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And be sure to read the article yourselves after listening. You can find the link in our episode notes. Now, for what it's worth, it is a long article and there are many parts that don't necessarily relate to the practice of anaesthetists that aren't chronic pain specialists, so just keep that in mind. First, let's define the condition. Complex regional pain syndrome, as defined by the International Association for the Study of Pain, or IASP, is a pain syndrome characterised by a continuing, either spontaneous and or evoked, regional pain that is seemingly disproportionate in time or degree to the usual course of any known trauma or other lesion. The pain is regional, not in a specific nerve territory or dermatome, and usually has a distal predominance of abnormal sensory, motor, pseudomotor, vasomotor, and or trophic findings. The syndrome shows variable progression over time. In layman's terms, CRPS is a chronic pain disorder that is isolated to a body region, and this is often in the limbs. When you look at the epidemiology of the condition, we see that the incidence is greater in women than men by two to four times and is greatest in postmenopausal women for reasons beyond our understanding. A retrospective cohort study of 1,043 patients at a single pain clinic found the following breakdown of the causes or the inciting events resulting in a diagnosis of CRPS. 44% occurred post-fracture. 21% resulted from blunt force trauma, including sprains. 12% developed post-surgery, and 7% arose post-carpal tunnel syndrome. Formal diagnostic criteria for CRPS were initially created in 1994 at an international specialist conference before being adopted by the IASP. These criteria were then validated through a series of studies and further refined in 2012 to the Budapest criteria. Prior to the formation of standardised and formal guidelines, CRPS had a range of different names with different highly variable and frankly confusing criteria for diagnosis. Some of these names you may have heard of and include reflex sympathetic dystrophy, causalgia, pseudec atrophy, transient osteoporosis, algodystrophy and the shoulder hand syndrome which occurs specifically in the upper limbs following either stroke or myocardial infarction. 
The Budapest criteria for diagnosing CRPS state that patients must meet each of the four following diagnostic features. One, continuing pain, which is disproportionate to any inciting event. Two, must report at least one symptom in three of the four following categories, which are A, sensory, reports of hyperalgesia or allodynia, B, vasomotor, reports of temperature asymmetry, skin colour changes or skin colour asymmetry, C, pseudomotor slash edema, reports of edema, sweating changes or sweating asymmetry, and D, motor or trophic, reports of decreased range of motion, motor dysfunction, characterised by weakness, tremor and dystonia, or trophic changes such as hair, nail and skin. Three, must display at least one sign at the time of evaluation in two or more of the following categories. A, sensory signs, so evidence of hyperalgesia to pinprick or allodynia to light touch, deep somatic pressure or joint movement. B, Vasomotor signs, looking for evidence of temperature asymmetry, skin colour changes or asymmetry. C. Pseudomotor signs or edema, so looking for evidence of edema, sweating changes or sweating asymmetry. And D. Motor and trophic signs, so looking for evidence of decreased range of motion, motor dysfunction, characterised by weakness, tremor and dystonia, or trophic changes in the hair, nail or skin. And 4. There is no better diagnosis that better explains the signs and symptoms. While we're talking about diagnostic criteria, it's worthwhile having a conversation about CRPS subtypes. In your clinical practice, you may hear people refer to CRPS type 1 and CRPS type 2, but what does this actually mean? Well, prior to the formation of the first formal CRPS diagnostic criteria in 1994, patients were classified as having either reflex sympathetic dystrophy, now referred to as CRPS type 1, in which a patient has no evidence of a peripheral nerve injury, or causalgia, now referred to as CRPS type 2, where a peripheral nerve injury is present. It's worth knowing that the continued distinction of these two different subtypes for CRPS is for historical purposes only. That's right. The diagnostic criteria for the two subtypes are identical and there is no clinical significance in distinguishing the two subtypes, nor does it affect the therapeutic options offered to these patients. That said, you may hear these names in current clinical use and it's worthwhile understanding what they are. Now, following on from this, there are two clinical syndromes under the umbrella of CRPS that have been observed in the literature and in which there are both specific symptom constellations and correlations with clinical outcomes, but which haven't formally been accepted as official CRPS subtypes. These are warm CRPS and cold CRPS. This distinction came about after a large international prospective multi-site study tested and found after a cluster analysis that patients could be distinguished as having warm CRPS, characterised by warm, red, dry and edematous extremity, or cold CRPS, in which they displayed a cold, blue, sweaty and less edematous extremity. With this clinical distinction, it was also noticed that the duration of the syndrome varied between the two groups, with those in the warm CRPS cluster having their syndrome for a much shorter duration, median 4.7 months, when compared to the cold CRPS cluster, whose median duration was 20 months. There was comparable pain intensity experienced across these subtypes. Lastly, we also want to address the subclassification of three distinct and sequential stages of CRPS. Now, historically, these three distinct stages were cited as being important in both diagnosing and treating the syndrome, but clinical studies and their statistical analyses have failed to prove this. 
Now, before moving on, we wanted to take a very brief stroll down pathophysiology lane. First and foremost, the pathogenesis of CRPS is unknown. There are several proposed mechanisms that involve both the central and peripheral nervous systems and which include inflammation, neurogenic inflammation and maladaptive changes, but we haven't been able to put the whole picture together yet. We know that pro-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-1, beta, interleukin-2, interleukin-6 and tumor necrosis factor alpha appear to play a role. A proposed mechanism for the persistent pain and allodynia experienced by these patients is the release of inflammatory mediators and pain-producing peptides from peripheral nerves. Neurogenic inflammation describes a process in which antidromic nerve impulses or nerve impulses that propagate in the opposite physiologic direction, so for example proximally to distally in a sensory and particularly nociceptive nerve axon, may lead to the release of these neuropeptides. With this, we also see an accumulation of mast cells, dendritic cells, Langerhans cells and keratinocytes, which speaks to an immune system interplay. Autoimmune involvement in the pathophysiology of CRPS accompanies the theory that dendritic cells and Langerhans cells may present self-antigens to the immune system, resulting in autoantibody production. One study has discovered that CRPS patients have antinuclear antibodies and immunoglobulin G antibodies against the surface antigens on autonomic nerves, and others have found autoantibodies to M2 muscarinic receptors, alpha-1 adrenoceptors, and beta-2 adrenoceptors. Central sensitization is another proposed explanation for the pain and allodynia experienced in CRPS. We know that increased activity in nociceptive afferents as a result of peripheral noxious stimuli, tissue damage or nerve injury leads to increased synaptic transmission at somatosensory neurons in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Cortical reorganisation and evidence of glial activation may lead to persistent activity of primary nociceptive neurons to cause central sensitization. Cortical reorganisation can manifest as referred sensations in a CRPS-affected limb when an unaffected limb or other body part is stimulated, or in distorted body perception in which, for example, a patient may perceive their CRPS-affected limb to be larger or take longer to actually recognise their affected limb. Signs of cortical dysfunction have been linked to symptom duration. Basal ganglia dysfunction has been linked to pain intensity as well. The sympathetic nervous system is proposed to be involved, but its exact role remains unclear. Autonomic manifestations may actually be a result of catecholamine hypersensitivity instead of the previously ascribed sympathetic overactivity. A proposed mechanism is the development of a reflex arc after an inciting event, which follows the path of the sympathetic nervous system and is modulated by cortical centres to produce peripheral vascular disturbance. Pain in response to the injury may cause an increase in the sensitivity of injured axons to adrenaline and other sympathetic nervous system neurotransmitters. This enhanced sensitivity can be blocked with the administration of sympatholytic agents. Lastly, genetic factors may also play a role in the pathogenesis of CRPS, with one case control study reporting a link between CRPS and an increased frequency of the HLADQ1 gene. Other studies have suggested potential links with other genes too. Okay, so that's probably enough pathophysiology for one day. Oh, I concur. Um, so let's move on to managing patients with CRPS. CRPS can be very difficult to treat successfully for several different reasons. As we've discussed, it is pathophysiologically complex with both peripheral and central processes. But in many patients, psychosocial factors impact the disease and the patient's ability to participate in treatment and rehabilitation. 
Even in diagnosis, there are challenges. For example, there is often a spectrum within clinicians of what is understood as being pain that is disproportionate to an inciting event. This is where the value of specialised multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary teams really comes into play because then all facets of the patient's pain experience can be managed. Management of patients with CRPS primarily focuses on functional restoration, but it's important to remember that with this pain syndrome, patients' experiences and symptoms are highly varied and there cannot be a one-size-fits-all approach to management. In the 2019 Anscombe Blue Book, there's a fantastic article focusing on the management of CRPS that is well worth reading. They have summarised the treatments that are appropriate for patients with specific clinical signs, which we'll walk through right now. For patients with inflammatory symptoms, often seen in acute CRPS and which can include edema, redness, heat and acute pain, short-term steroids may be useful. Patients with regional osteopenia also seen in acute CRPS may benefit from bisphosphonates or with corticosteroids in combination with dimethyl sulfoxide or DMSO cream. Psychological symptoms can be managed with behavioural therapies such as cognitive behavioural therapy, also known as CBT. Patients experiencing distorted body perception and representation can be managed using several different treatment options, which include physical and occupational therapy, mirror therapy for patients with acute CRPS, graded motor imagery for patients with chronic CRPS. Patients experiencing spontaneous pain, hyperalgesia and allodynia may be commenced on medications to improve their symptoms, and these include analgesics, including topical creams and combinations, tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline and nortriptyline, gabapentin and pregabalin. Sympathetically mediated pain, usually experienced during acute intermediate CRPS, may be managed with sympathetic nerve blocks or intravenous ketamine infusions. For chronic refractory pain, appropriate treatment may include interventions such as spinal cord stimulation or for patients with lower limb pain, dorsal root stimulation. And lastly, for patients experiencing central motor symptoms like dystonia, treatment options include intramuscular botulinum type A injections for patients with intermediate CRPS or intrathecal baclofen pumps for patients with chronic CRPS. Now, because of time constraints, we can't do a deep dive discussion on every medication type and treatment modality for the management of CRPS. But one medication type we really did want to discuss was opioids. We want to say from the outset that opioid use in CRPS is contentious and that there is no consensus regarding their utility in managing pain associated with CRPS. We know that neuropathic pain does not respond to opioids either as universally or as well as acute nociceptive pain. We also know that dose escalation is common with long-term use and that despite this, patients accrue cumulative adverse effects without appearing to receive any improvement in pain relief. Ultimately, the question of short-term use of opioids in CRPS remains unanswered, but many concerns as to their use seems increasingly valid. These concerns include the following. First, high-dose administration of opioids significantly increases the risk of overdose, where a cohort study found that patients prescribed 100 milligrams or more of morphine or its equivalent had a nine times greater risk of serious overdose than those taking less than 20 milligrams of morphine or its equivalent. Two, tolerance and long-term toxicity, as we've already mentioned earlier. Three, Long-term high-dose opioid use can actually worsen allodynia, which is where a pain response occurs to stimuli that usually doesn't evoke pain, or hyperpathia, which is where there is an exaggerated response to a stimulus, especially a repeating one. Four, 
tolerance often co-occurs with opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is an exaggerated response to painful stimulus. There is an opinion that low-dose opioids may be a reasonable second or third-line treatment option, but that doses should not be escalated freely. Some specific opioids that may be more useful than others in this situation include methadone because of its additional NMDA antagonism, or tramadol and tapentadol with their activity on noradrenergic and in tramadol's case, serotonergic reuptake inhibition. A controversial approach to opioid prescribing is the use of short-acting opioids for breakthrough pain. The rationale is that the occasional dose is unlikely to harm, but this is confounded by a typical progression to daily or more frequent use, which defies the purpose of avoiding tolerance and higher daily dosing. Ultimately, if opioid use is considered appropriate, risk-benefit analysis should be performed continuously. For those who'd like to take a closer look at the utility of the varied CRPS treatment modalities, the article published in the Pain Medicine Journal does a great job of this and also discusses the evidence too. It's a long article, as we've said before, but contains really good analyses of the CRPS management options. Finally, we wanted to address the prognosis of patients with CRPS. There are highly variable rates of both favourable and poor outcomes, depending on the study cited, but generally speaking, a large proportion of patients have some degree of prolonged disability. In patients whose clinical syndrome has resolved, the risk of recurrence ranges from 10 to 30%, with higher rates occurring in younger patients, including children. Recurrences can occur spontaneously or with cold exposure and also appear to be triggered by physical trauma, emotional trauma or new surgery, either of the affected limb or an unaffected remote site. So in summary, CRPS is a complex disease process with many different and varied presentations, progressions and management options. Interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary management is key in attempting to provide the best outcomes possible for patients, and the importance of psychosocial interactions and management options rather than pharmacotherapy alone cannot be understated. Now, before we say goodbye, Kate, what have you learned in anesthesia this week? Uh, yeah, so I'm actually just looking. I've been sent an article from two different sources. Oh. Um, and uh, I'm just going to pull that one up because, as you know, I'm still on leave, so I'm not attending work. True. Uh, that said, I've been doing a little bit of just stuff on the side. But this is an article, very recent article from Anesthesia, published 23rd of December 2022, and is the effects of Sugamidex versus Neostigmine on postoperative respiratory complication as an Complications and Advanced Healthcare Utilisation, a multi-centre retrospective cohort study. Oh, okay. Do you want a spoiler alert? I want a spoiler alert. Let's, let's, um, let's not keep people hanging. So I quote, Compared with neostigmine, reversal of neuromuscular blockade with Sugamidex was not associated with a reduction in post-operative respiratory complications or post-procedural advanced healthcare utilisation. Oh, <laughs> so, that's interesting. Anyway, I'm not, we're not going to go into it today. Maybe we'll discuss it another time. But it is interesting, that's isn't it? very interesting. Mm. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I need to go on a bit more of a deep dive in that article. But, yeah, it was sent to me by two different kind of group chats. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, okay. Oh, well, when you, when you do your deep dive, let us know. Sure. How about you? Well, this week, and this literally happened this week, we were trialling a new piece of equipment in theatre. Now, there's been... Obviously, there's a lot of talk about awareness at the moment and BIS and the utility of BIS and all that sort of thing. Mm. So this is a new piece of equipment by a company called Mossimo, and I'm not plugging this. I'll say that right now. <laughs> You're um, not receiving any money? I'm not receiving any kickbacks. Mm. This is just something interesting that we've trialled in theatre. And it's the same sort of thing. It's, it's essentially it's a monitor that goes on the forehead. It goes on both sides of the forehead and it's designed to essentially give you more information than the BIS module does. Mm. So as well as giving you 
a number, a dimensionless number like, like the BIS monitor does that gives you an indication of anaesthetic depth. It also gives you waveforms from mm, all okay. of the different electrodes. There are four mm. electrodes. So it gives you waveforms. So you can see directly which waveforms are present. So you can see if you have a beautiful delta, delta. pattern. Mm. But the other thing it does is that it also gives you a graphic breakdown on the percentage of the activity of each of the different types of waves. So, and it sounds like, speaking to the rep about this, it sounds like that specifically is designed to help you differentiate what happens if you have a big spike in your number. Mm. And to then be able to look at this graph and like let's say you have a BIS spike up to 16, you mm. want to know why. You can look at this graph, which gives you real-time data, which may then show you, okay, you have a lot of theater activity, but you still have the, a predominance of delta activity. Mm. So you can sort of look at that number and go, okay, it's probably not an mm. accurate representation of anesthetic depth. And it just gives you a bit more in- information to try and interpret those things. Mm. And I got to say, I really liked it. It's technology that I know very little about and I need to do a bit more reading myself. But so far from what I've seen, it's just, you know, knowledge is power and this is definitely something that gives you more knowledge. I think it's the kind of thing where, yeah, you need to know what the data means before you can interpret it and act on it. I mean, I'd like to talk to our colleagues who are sleep physicians and, you know, see what they have some insight. And definitely when you first see all of these different graphs and things like that mm. on this monitor, it's, it is intimidating mm. and it took me quite a while to actually get a feel for what mm. I was looking at. But um, so far from what I've seen, mm. and again, I will preface this by saying I haven't done a lot of reading, I haven't done a lot of deep dive, deep diving into whether this is valid in clinical studies and mm. things like that, but so far the technology seems impressive. Mm. So we'll have to do a little bit more research in that, that area and see what pops. Yeah. Mm. There you go. Mm. Well, it's been an interesting discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. Consultants and fellows, don't forget to claim CPD for listening. Instructions for how to do this are in our episode notes. If you have any episode suggestions or you'd just like to say hi, you can email us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.